0: Listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I recently took a part time job as a musician again. I joined an agency wedding band. So I've been playing a lot of weddings. And I played some weddings before this time, but not like this. This is my first weekend off and six weekends straight of playing weddings. And when you start playing weddings every single weekend, you know, it starts to become a job. (laughs) And you notice the predictable patterns of weddings, at least in our culture. Basically, it goes like this. There's a ceremony, and then in between the ceremony and reception, there's often a cocktail hour, okay? And then people mosey on over sometime when the dinner reception is about to begin, then we, the band, start up a mellow dinnertime set. We play some Stevie Wonder, some Her, some Sade, some Adele, some John Legend, some Bill Withers. We keep it real nice and smooth. And the parents come, and they give their welcome speeches. And the maid of honor and the best man come, and they give their toast. Maybe the couple themselves welcomes. But then, after the toasts, after the speeches are over, after the dinner has been eaten, the event changes. The band brings in a funky beat the horn section gets in position, the lights go low, and one of the singers gets up on the microphone and says, all right, is everybody ready to have a good time tonight? I want to see everybody out on the dance floor tonight. And thus, the hype man, or hype lady, has entered into the scene. Now, the hype man's job is to let the people know that it's time to party. The hype man's job is to let them, the people know the whole reason why they've been Uh, why they've been brought to that place, which is to have a party, to have a feast. The hype man's job is to turn people's affections and bodies towards the reason why, why they are there in the first place, which is to feast and to celebrate love, particularly the love shared between the two people getting married today. It's to celebrate new life. The hype man serves to remind the crowd why they're there. Our Old Testament today, text today from 1 Chronicles is a great celebration. It is a wedding of sorts. It is a union. And King David, King David is a holy hype man. David is a king who sings. David is a king who's presiding over the arrival of the ark, which represents the powerful presence of God, back to the place where the ark belongs, the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And David, as the holy hype man, is turning the people's affections towards the reason why they are there in the first place, which is to feast and to celebrate the loving and majestic presence of the God of Israel. Because God's people back in David's day and God's people today, we need a king who sings. We need a true worship leader to turn our hearts towards the one who gives life. Because the issues of the people back in David's day and the issues today They're not just issues of situational problems, what we're going through. They're not just issues of intellectual problems, what we think about things. They are issues of adoration, what we adore, what thrills our hearts, for what we give thanks for and to whom we give that thanks, where we seek to find joy. We have been working through this series on salvation's greatest hits that Pastor Russ came up with. I love it. And we've been going through passages throughout the Old Testament to show how all the scriptures, in all their completion, bear witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ, which reshapes our whole spirituality. And the deep part of the structure of that whole series has been revealing the main three offices in the Old Testament, the office of prophet and priest and king. We have transitioned now from the office of priest in the first part to the office of king. Last week, Pastor Rush uh, preached the well-known a passage of David and Goliath, and we saw a mighty king who fought for God's fearful people. Today, we see that king, King David, as the true worship leader who leads God's people into true worship through a unified song of adoration. We're going to look at that passage in two parts. First, a king and a song. A king and a song. First, the king. Before David was a king, even before David was that young warrior who defeated a giant, he was a musician. He played the lyre, which is a kind of harp. He played songs. He wrote songs. He sang songs. He was a poet. He was a creative, as we might say today. Even before the episode Pastor Russ preached last week in 1 Samuel 17, if you turn back a chapter... The king Saul has a harmful spirit come upon him. He has some sort of spiritual and psychological oppression on him. And he calls for, as we would call today, musical therapy. And King David, who's not a king then, he comes into Saul's court and plays the lyre for him. And every time he does, the harmful spirit leaves him. So David David comforts Saul with his songs. Saul continues to grow in his madness and eventually decides to try to get rid of David. And on the run, David has to hide in all sorts of caves and houses and all sorts of places. And what does David do when he's in the midst of such fear and darkness? He writes songs. (laughs) What we would call psalms. He sings them. Psalms like the one we know as Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from my groanings? When the Lord delivers David from the hand of Saul, David writes what we know as Psalm 18, where he says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. And from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry reached his ears. David ends up writing at least 73 of the 150 Psalms. Psalms is a word that just means songs. So David writes probably more than half of the biggest book of the Bible. These are songs of pain and lament, songs of praise and joy, songs of confession and repentance. And when David finally rises to the place of king, after Saul is killed and he is anointed king, yes, David has to fight political battles and military battles. He has to make governmental arrangement. But his priority as king chiefly first, is about worship, especially in the book of 1 Chronicles. He is so concerned to bring the ark back to Israel, back to the city where it belongs, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, because in the recent history of Israel, worship had become quite a mess. The ark itself had traveled all around. The Philistines had captured it. It had wound up at at different places in Israel. The priests themselves had been a mess. Some of them had been idolaters and and drunkards. Everything was a mess. The Ark, though, was the central symbol and reality of God's presence with Israel. It was the, the centerpiece of the tabernacle. As Pastor Russ preached two weeks ago, it was the centerpiece of atonement, where ultimate atonement was made. The ark was a reminder of Israel's covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And so when David finally is able to bring the ark back to Israel, it's a big deal. It's a big wedding scene, a reunion scene of the Lord of Israel and his people. And to make preparation for that union, David organizes the Bible's first ever praise band and praise choir. Before this point in the scriptures, we don't have a lot of evidence that there was a lot of music and especially a lot of singing around the worship of the tabernacle. But David organizes it. First of all, he, got, he gets Kenaniah. Kenaniah is the choir director with the Levite choir. I like to, to think they had a brand name like Kenaniah and the Holy Levite Singers or something. <laughs> King David sets aside Asaph as the what we would call the MD, the music director. And Asaph's also the drummer on the cymbals. You have Zechariah and Je'iel, who's the, and the rest of the crew are the string sections on the harps and lyres. And finally, you have Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priest, who were the horn section. All right? They were to blow the trumpets. <laughs> and as they start this procession, it's loud and joyous. Uh, when they bring the ark back to Jerusalem, there is sacrifices, there is shouting. One person said one time, if you want to know the theology of worship in the Bible, it's one word, Loud. So if you ever feel like worship in here is just loud, just know we're just trying to be biblical. We're just trying to be biblical. David, as a king, puts himself and all of himself into this celebration. In a world, especially in the ancient Near East, where kings are the ones who, who are to be bowed down to, we have the image of a king humbling himself in the presence of a greater king. And that's why we are told that Michal, the daughter of Saul, she looks out and she sees David dancing and celebrating. And 1 Samuel, we we, we come to understand, he probably shows a little bit of his legs as he's dancing, and she despises him in his heart. And she says, what are you doing as a king out there looking like a fool like that? And David says to her in 1 Samuel, he says, it's before the Lord that I'm dancing, and I will become even more contemptible or undignified than this in the presence of my king Mm. and David's kingly role here in this scene it blends between worship leader he's dressed like a priest and then he's also a host at this great party he makes sure that the thousands of men and women who have shown up he makes sure they get a good meal As king, he makes sure that everyone gets a portion of provision. Each one gets a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. And in that context, that's a luxurious feast. Meat was not a common part of a daily diet for an ancient Near Eastern Israelite. David is seen here as the king who sings, the king who feeds, the king who blesses the people. This image we are given as the king as a worship leader who leads the way of the people in the praise of God. He models the way towards proper adoration because throughout the biblical story and even today, we see that as kings go, so the people go because we all look to someone to take cues on what to adore in life. Human beings need worship leaders whether those worship leaders are in the sanctuary or on the Instagram. The question is, what is that worship leader leading us to adore? We often follow the wrong worship leaders. We're led to adore the wrong things. We're thrilled by the wrong things. Things we think lead to our joy instead lead to our misery. Things we think lead to life lead to death. And David's dancing, David's singing. It is not a mere performance, okay? It is an invitation to proper adoration. David is saying, follow me as I head towards joy. Follow me as I head towards life. And at this moment, not at all moments in David's life, if you know the story, but at this moment, he gives the picture of a king who leads worship as it's meant to be. He is the holy hype man, in effect saying, I want to see everybody out here on the dance floor of the Lord. He's turning the people's hearts and bodies back to the reason why they were created in the first place. That's the image of king we are given. And this king gives his people a unified song of adoration, a song. This is a long song, as you probably uh, could tell when I was reading the scripture. It's a combination of what become three different psalms in the Psalter. First, you have Psalm, a portion of Psalm 105, then a portion of Psalm 96, then a portion of Psalm 106. And here in Chronicles, David or someone else splices them together like a holy medley. And this song is a whole sermon by itself. But I want to I just isolate four emphases of the song. And the first one, the core emphasis, is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and praise. David says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Thanksgiving is the cornerstone of adoration, of proper adoration. It is the cornerstone of worship in the Bible. That's why Thanksgiving and praise are inseparable. They're always combined. Thanksgiving fills the pages of the Old Testament and, of course, the book of Psalms. But you know what? It fills the pages of the New Testament as well. It is seen as the mark of one who knows God and lives life in communion with God. Because thanksgiving itself says something different about what humanity is and what the world is. Humanity is not just an accident. One of the things to watch, one of the remarkable things to watch, is to watch people who don't know God, but who are thankful. And so they're left having to give thanks to the universe, to fate, to destiny. But humanity is not an accident. Humanity is also not to be seen as mere consumers of commodities, as if it's just some transactional relationship between everything we are given. But instead, in the Bible's story of things, humanity is to relate to their maker as a giver who fills the world with all his good gifts and for which we are supposed to say back, thank you. We need help to try to think about this, though, because we struggle with this in our culture. I was recently pointed the way towards the direction of a book by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And now she is an indigenous botanist, all right? She's a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. In her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, which is a fantastic book, she talks about this difference between thinking about the world as commodity and thinking about the world as gift. She says, it's funny how the nature of an object, let's say a strawberry or a pair of socks, is so changed by the way it has come into your hands, as either a gift or a commodity. She says, this pair of wool socks that I buy at the store, red and gray striped, they're warm and cozy. I might feel grateful for the sheep that made the wool. I might feel grateful for the worker on the knitting machine. She says, I hope so. But I have no inherent obligation to those socks as a commodity. They're just private property. I paid for them. I gave an equal exchange, and I was given them back. She says, I don't write a thank you note to the clerk at Target (laughs) for giving me this pair of socks. But she said, but what if those very same socks, red and gray striped, what if they were knitted by my grandmother and given to me as a gift? This changes everything. She says, a gift creates ongoing relationship I will write a thank you note to my grandmother. I will take good care of them, and if I'm a very gracious grandchild, I'll wear them when she visits, even if I don't like them. When it's, her, when it's her birthday, I will surely make her a gift in return. As the scholar and writer Lewis Hyde notes, it's the cardinal difference between gift and commodity exchange that a gift establishes a feeling bond between two people. This is totally in harmony with what the Bible says about all of who we are and all of creation. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of light. All of life is a gift. Every breath, every day we wake up, every time the sun rises, it is a gift to be received. It creates a feeling bond between the giver and the recipient. That's why the covenants themselves to Israel are a gift. That's why the scriptures call the gospel of Jesus Christ a free gift from God. It's a gift to be received. It's a gift that invites mutuality of response, mutuality of thanksgiving. Do you see that? I I hope... (laughs) Every time I talk about Thanksgiving, I feel like it's so kitschy in our culture because we talk about an attitude of gratitude and, you know, a few weeks away is, is Thanksgiving and we celebrate the mythology of the pilgrims again. But Thanksgiving is so much deeper than that. Secondly, David grounds Thanksgiving, as I just noted, in remembering the covenant. He said, remember his covenant forever, the, world he com- the word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham. David is saying, in effect, look back at what God has done in your life, Israel. Look at where you could have been and look at where you are now. It's such an important part of thanksgiving to remember what God has done. And thirdly, deeply related to thanksgiving and to remembering is resisting idolatry. David says, For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Idolatry deeply relates to the idea of gift and thanksgiving. Idolatry is like that moment where if you were to give somebody a gift, they didn't say thank you, they took it in their hands, they were utterly obsessed with it, and they just walked away. Idolatry is receiving the gifts of our creator, but instead being obsessed with the gift themselves and not returning thanks to the giver. Idolatry is being stopped short on the train of adoration. The gifts of creation are supposed to be uh, the cause for which we give praise to the maker. And that's why in the Bible's estimation of things, idolatry is pretty ridiculous. How could you just receive a piece of wood and give praise to it? How could you make something and then bow down and worship? Everything is a gift from a greater creator. That's the third theme of this song. And the fourth theme is relying on the Lord's mercy. Where David says, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather and deliver us from among the nations. Why? That we may give thanks to your holy name. This image of a king who sings and gives his people a unified song of adoration, it etches out for us an image and a motif that will be carried through the story of the rest of the Old and New Testament. Solomon, David's son, he'll build a temple for this ark. But Solomon and the king's hearts after him will suffer from these same issues of adoration. They'll forget. They'll turn from the Lord. They'll start giving their adoration to the things of creation rather than the creator. And this adoration issue of God's people results them being taken into exile, returning again, failing again, leading to this longing in the rest of scripture for a true greater king who leads to a greater song of adoration. And so the prophets, they all start to hone in on this image of the Davidic kingship. They're looking for the restoration of that throne of David, that image of a king who leads the true way of worship that would heal the people of Israel and that would heal not only them, all of the nations. Isaiah, the prophet, as we'll celebrate in a few weeks, said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And that day, the root of Jesse shall stand for a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The vision of the prophets is that there would be a king who would come that wouldn't just lead Israel back into proper worship. He would lead the nations too. Isaiah 56, 7, that God's house would be made into a house of prayer for all nations. That might sound familiar to you that the Gentiles would come to praise God because of this one who is a king. And so at the beginning pages of the New Testament, you start to hear this rumbling of the house of David, the line of David. And as it begins to be celebrated, there's a greater son of David who has come. What happens? Everybody starts singing again. Mary sings her song, the Magnificat about remembering the covenant mercies of God that have shined down, Zachariah sings his song called the Benedictus, where he celebrates that God has raised up a horn of salvation from where? From the house of David. The angels themselves descend to the earth to sing their song, Glory to God in the highest. See, when the greater king came, people started to sing a new song. That child, he grew up singing the songs of David in the temple and the synagogue. And eventually, Jesus starts quoting the Psalms in his ministry. But as he does so, he lets the people know that David was singing about him. In several episodes, Jesus also has crowds who come before him, and they begin to worship him and adore him and learn from him. And he takes bread. He breaks it. He multiplies it. He makes sure that everyone is given a proper provision. Do you see the image of a king who feeds, a king who sings? Jesus, like his ancestor David before him, had the plot of evil chasing after him. But an even greater evil than King Saul, it was the enemy, Satan himself. And when the plot of the evil one was coming to full fruition, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And and Jesus, in the ultimate connection to his royal ancestor David, sings out Psalm 22, again, from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus does so in a way far greater than David could ever do. Because he doesn't just do it as the son of Jesse or the son of David, but he does it as the son of God. He does so and sings the song of forsakenness as a sinless sacrifice for sin. He doesn't just sing it as the king. He sings it as the priest and the prophet. And his song of forsakenness saves the people from being forsaken in their sins. Our king sings the song of forsakenness so that we may truly never have to sing those words. We may feel forsaken. We may feel in the pit of death itself. But there is one who has come and sing from the pit of death. And his song of pain, like David, is turned into a psalm of victory. In a way that David could never have sung, he fully brings Psalm 18 back to life. The chords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me, and in my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry reached his ears. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. If the crucifixion is our king's song of forsakenness for us, then the resurrection is our king's song of victory on our behalf. For in it he defeated the ultimate enemy, death itself. But of course, it doesn't stop there. As Walt Disney said, it's the song that never ends. (laughs) Hebrews 8 said, Now the point we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's kingly image. And Hebrews calls Jesus a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That word minister is the same word as worship leader in our passage today. Because just as Asaph and Jehaziel and the rest of them were called to minister before the tent of meeting, before the ark, Jesus has taken his place as the greater worship leader in heaven. And as God's people participate now in this sanctuary on earth, we do so because there is a greater king who sings in heaven for us now, who leads us in the way of proper praise and adoration to the Father through the Holy Spirit. In this sense, Jesus is the ultimate holy hype man who says, I want to see everybody out here on the dance floor of the Lord, who turns the affections and the bodies of all humanity back to the reason why we are here in the first place, which is to celebrate the loving and majestic presence of a God who saved us. And as we join in that song, we are unified, says the book of Revelation, to all those who have come before us to all who will come after us and at the culmination of glory will sing what revelation calls the song of the lamb great and amazing are your deeds o lord god the almighty just and true are your ways o king of the nations that is our king who sings do you see it do you see from first chronicles all the way to the last supper all the way to the book of revelation a king who is a true worship leader who leads God's people in worship. What are some points of application? Every single Sunday, people of God, is a reenactment of this wedding feast between God and his people. Every Sunday, the great King Jesus leads his people in the spirit to the adoring, joyful union that he has with the Father. This is Trinitarian worship. That is why worship still has leaders. Worship leaders and ministers are those who minister before you to try to lead you to the greater king. Calling, inviting, beckoning all the people, all of you, towards the right posture of thanksgiving and praise. Towards remembering the covenant. Towards resisting idolatry. Towards relying on God's mercy. Here's an application. Let yourself be led. Be vulnerable in the place of worship. Follow those who lead you to say, come on. I want to see everybody out here on the dance floor tonight. Too often our hearts are cold and stony like the heart of Mikal, who sees people in the place of praise and secretly despises them in our hearts. Because we don't want to be vulnerable enough to enter into that kind of joy. We would rather have our hearts stay guarded from the presence of God. We would rather have our hearts stay grounded in the place of cynicism, in the place of doubt. But people of God, let your hearts be warmed in the sanctuary. Even before worship, are you excited to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Do you realize the cosmic significance of what is happening in this place? Worship is doing the world as it's meant to be done, said one theologian. Every Sunday, celebrating that presence. I also encourage you to cultivate gratitude in your life. Cultivate gratitude. Viewing life itself as a gift changes the way you view everything. Other people, food, your own body, plants, the ground, the sky, music, everything. I want to encourage you towards specific practices this week that cultivate your heart in thanksgiving. When you wake up throughout this next week, I want to invite you to just pray this prayer. Good morning, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of this day. We need simple practices like this, all right? And I, and I wrote this yesterday, and then, and then today, in the middle of the night, my four-year-old woke me up five times or something, and, I, and I'm tired this morning looking at the counter, giving kids some cereal, and I remembered that I wrote this. <laughs> and I'm supposed to say, good morning, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of this day. Thank you for this little image bearer in front of me. Thank you that it's my, my, that it's my privilege to feed him. How would your life change if you viewed life as a gift? How would your life change as you viewed, if you viewed your neighbors as a gift? How would your life change as you viewed every single meal you receive as a gift that creates this feeling bond between giver and gift? That is the heart of proper adoration, thanksgiving. And people of God, as we head towards the table now, I want you to have that image of 1 Chronicles 16 in your mind. A king standing over a great feast, lifting up his arms, making provision for all God's people to receive a generous portion of the feast of his love. And you would remember that you have a king who sings now in the heavenly places, and we are invited into his feast. Let me pray for us.